Talk to you with some announcements before we get into this week's episode. Euroclosure will be taking place in Berlin, Germany on July 20th and 21st. Euroclosure is the biggest closure conference in Europe. Founded in 2012, the conference is a great place to meet closure developers and learn about what is happening in the language, in the community, and in companies using closure. Visit 2017.euroclosure.org for more information and to register. BusConf is a non-profit, open-space conference about functional programming taking place from the 3rd to the 5th in August in Germany, near Frankfurt. They provide a platform for people to meet, teach, and learn about functional programming-related topics in any language. Ticket registration is already open, and you can find out more at www.bus-conf.org. Alexa London is a one-day conference on the 17th of August that encourages inclusion and diversity within the Alexa community. To help do this, ticket prices are low, with early bird at only 119 euros plus VAT, and there are also 30 free scholarship places available. Jose Valim, the creator of Elixir, is confirmed to keynote, and the full schedule is to be announced this week. Visit www.elixir.london for more information. Strange Loop is coming up. Strange Loop is a multidisciplinary conference that brings together developers and thinkers building tomorrow's technologies in fields such as programming languages, databases, distributed systems, AI and machine learning, security, and the web. It will be held in St. Louis, Missouri on September 28th through the 30th at the Peabody Opera House. Registration opens June 8th, so make sure to visit thestrangeloop.com to keep updated as tickets tend to go fast. BWLConf 2017 is the second full-day Papers We Love conference, co-located with the pre-conference events at Strange Loop in St. Louis, Missouri on September 28th. Last year's event was a great success, with talks ranging from designing network systems to game engines. The conference intends to bring academia and industry within reach of one another, hoping to foster stronger collaboration and mutual appreciation across respective fields. Tickets are $40 with an optional donation and free if you're a student or a recipient of a Strange Loop Opportunity Grant. Keep an eye out for updates on pwlconf.org as speakers are still being confirmed. Open F Sharp will be taking place the 28th and 29th of September in San Francisco. Open F Sharp features two days of F Sharp talks and workshops with world-class speakers and a unique opportunity to connect with the F Sharp community and some of its key contributors while learning about the latest developments in the F Sharp ecosystem. Tickets are on sale, and for more information and to register, visit openfsharp.org. RacketCon is October 7th and 8th at the University of Washington, with one day of speakers and one day of collaborative hacking. Their keynote speakers are the CS professors, Dan Friedman, co-author of the classic reference Essentials of Programming Languages, and Will Bird, inventor of Minikanon. Details and tickets are available through the webpage at con.racket-lang.org. Lambda World is back taking place in Cadiz, Spain, on October 26th and 27th. Early bird tickets are sold out, but student tickets and regular price tickets are still available. For more information, visit www.lambda.world. CodeMesh will be taking place the 8th and 9th of November. Keynote speakers David Turner and Margot Seltzer are already confirmed. Very early bird tickets are sold out, but early bird ticket sales start July 21st. More details can be found at www.codemesh.io. MoonConf will be taking place in Phoenix, Arizona on November 9th through the 11th. MoonConf is a three-day conference for the functional programming community to learn and celebrate together. There will be single-track talks on Thursday and Friday, and an all-day open space unconference on Saturday. For more information, visit www.moonconf.org. And if you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com, and I'll be happy to announce them. Also, some of you have mentioned you would like to share your support for Functional Geekery. 
In that vein, Functional Geekery now has a Patreon page. If that is how you would like to show your support, you can find out more at www.patreon.com slash fngeekery. And a giant virtual hug goes out to all those who are already supporting the podcast. Lastly, if you are enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you leave a rating and or review on iTunes or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email guests at functionalgeekery.com, and I will put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening, and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm Russ Proctor, and this week with us we have Mark Allen. Mark, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? Sure. Hey, I'm Mark. I've been writing Erlang for about five years as a professional and developing software for over 20 years now, more or less. And for the last few, well, the last year specifically, I've been back at AlertLogic um, working on some machine learning stuff that we're doing with the data we're collecting from our customers. So. And I got you on the radar from the Erlang crowd and specifically the Basho crowd with a lot of the distributed computing that they did in Reoc, and you were part of the Reoc core team. And so I wanted to get you on to talk about your experience with Erlang, making that transition, and some of those lessons that we probably should be learning still with distributed computing, because when you're doing React Core, I've heard you on a couple of other podcasts talking about that. So yeah, let's just start with how you got set up into programming and made the transition into Erlang. You mentioned some of that in the pre-call was your background, but let's give a recap of that for the audience. Yeah, absolutely. So I started writing software around 2000-ish, something in there. Started a company up with some friends of mine and was kind of pushed into the role of programming a bit reluctantly. As I mentioned earlier, of course, your audience didn't hear this earlier, but basically I was a system administrator for a long time. And we started a company to help provide security patches to fleets of servers. And in the early 2000s, this was not a thing. It was just not a thing that existed. Uh, you literally had people running around with not even thumb drives because those also did not exist. You had people running around with floppy disks putting them physically into machines and, and installing patches that way. So we wanted to write a system to help automate all of that. And that's kind of what kickstarted my programming career and kind of what transitioned me away from doing a lot of system administration and a lot of operational type stuff to more software design and software architecture, kind of also just daily writing software to support the mission of our startup company. And so time rolled on. Took a bunch of different positions with different companies, basically doing the same thing, same sort of target area until I worked at Target, the retailer. And then at that point, I was sort of transitioned back into more of an operational role, which was nice. But I reached a point there where I needed to decide if I was going to like become a guy that moved boxes around on Visio diagrams to indicate like API designs and stuff like that, or if I was actually going to be a developer that wrote code every day and didn't let it sort of slip out of your grasp, right? You either go on to this kind of architectural slash management track or kind of you, if you're lucky, get into a, a role where you're an individual contributor, but, you know, you have some kind of technology leadership that you've earned, hopefully. Generally, people don't respect stuff that's sort of thrust on you. But anyway, yeah, so I lived in Minnesota for a while and we got tired of winter. We got tired of snow quite a bit of snow up in Minnesota. It's a you know lovely place to live, but my wife and I were tired of snow, and so we moved to Texas. And when I got to Texas, I had this job at AlertLogic, which is where I work now. 
So this was before Basho. And Alert Logic is where I learned to write Erlang. So Erlang was thrust upon me. It was not something that I actively sought out, unfortunately. I guess in retrospect, if I could go back in time, I would tell earlier me to not be stupid about this and just, you know, embrace Erlang. And like, you know, it is it is a great computing model. Uh, you know, once you kind of push past all of the things that irritated earlier me, these are all things that I find virtuous now, but at the time were really stupid. So anyway, uh, yeah, so that's kind of the, the background. I learned Erlang from writing at Alert Logic, and I went through this trough where everything about Erlang I hated, and it was terrible and awful, and then eventually sort of reached the sunny uplands of of productivity and happiness. And, you know, this is sort of, I guess I wouldn't call it the one true way because th- that sort of way of thinking is sort of dangerous, I think. But I think that it's a really, really, really powerful way to approach problems and deconstruct problems. And the sort of techniques that Erlang gives you out of the box are fantastic for distributed system problems. And to be honest, there are a lot of distributed system problems that are not well solved in our current world. And that's sad, but we're improving that state, I think, all the time. One really, really cool thing that I've noticed is that a lot of other sort of programming paradigms and things are starting to borrow ideas from Erlang. You think about Akka and the whole like sort of actor model that came to Java and Scala. And then Microsoft has this amazing actor model called Orleans for .NET. And there's also Akka.NET if you want a straight up sort of Erlang style actor implementation. But Orleans is actually really, really innovative, has a lot of novelty, like a lot of new ideas about how to do distributed systems correctly and easily, providing abstractions to programmers that are helpful and not hurtful. So I'm super excited about Orleans as a programming discipline. And I hope that that we'll be able to steal some of those ideas for Erlang because they're really, really good, a lot of them. And you said you got thrown into Erlang at Alert Logic. Yeah. About how long ago was that? And what was that experience like? Because I know Erlang's had better growth track, especially since Elixir came out with the tooling and being forced up their game. But when were you getting in and you said you found and didn't get Erlang and you're like, I'm forced to do this thing. This is stupid. Why am I doing this? What were some of those things that you found at that time? So if you come from a background where your sort of normal way of thinking about a problem is focused around sort of mutable state and Anything can update anything and it's sort of object focused, right? You want to decompose a system into its sort of nouns and verbs. You know, I think that's a pretty common way that people approach that sort of abstraction to a problem. Erlang doesn't really lend itself very easily to that sort of decomposition. Erlang has a lot of attributes such as variable immutability, right? You don't assign things to a variable. You bind a variable name to a value. And then for the scope of that block, you can't change that value. It's always going to be that no matter what. And one of the other things that's really great about Erlang is explicit state mutation, right? So you can't have sort of concurrent actors behind your back updating values that you don't know about. And another really great virtue is that we don't share anything. Variables don't share memory with other variables. They're all completely isolated from one another. And if you want to transmit changes and mutate state in other things, then you have to send them messages and receive messages. And that's sort of the computational conceit of Erlang at its core, which is, you know, you're sending messages to things and you're receiving messages from things, and that's going to mutate your internal state. And at the time, just wrapping your head around that was really, really hard. Something else that was really difficult coming from sort of imperative programming background was 
how you look at loop construction. So like in Python or Perl or Ruby or whatever, you have for loops, you have while loops, you have for each loops, you have all sorts of different iterators over the top of data structures. And in Erlang, what you have is recursion. And if you have to solve every looping problem with recursion, and you don't normally deal with that in your sort of everyday programming, that's really hard to figure out. Erlang has the whole fleet of higher order functions like, you know, filter and map and fold and all those sorts of things that are super powerful. But when you're writing baby Erlang and you're just coming to a brand new, it's really difficult to wrap your head around how to use those things efficiently and also just how to solve problems. When you look at iterating over the top of a loop, you kind of have to decide when you're coming to it from some other background, is this a fold? Is this a map? Is this a filter? Like, what is the operation that I'm trying to... You have to figure all that out. It's not necessarily obvious which one you should pick. You kind of have to fumble around with it for a while. And so, you know, you resent that, right? When you're experienced enough, when you're sort of, I don't know, want to say set in your ways, but when you have experience with a certain language and runtime and all that, you sort of resent having to go back to that sort of first principles thing where it's like, I can't believe I have to look up the freaking interface for this thing that I just used like a screen ago. And now I have to call it again and I can't remember what it is. So I have to go look it up again. Or like just yesterday I was on Stack Overflow for three hours trying to solve a problem about how can I index into a string in Erlang, right? Like from a set offset, like how can I do that efficiently? <laughs> you know, and it's just super irritating. So those are all the things that bug the crap out of me. The point where I started to really, really appreciate what Erlang brought to the table was the point where things like where we started to need concurrency in a major way. So, look, for example, one of the things that I wrote when I was more experienced with how Erlang worked was a it's really a job fulfillment dispatcher. What it does is it when you sign up for service, it will go out and talk to all the different parts of AlertLogic's infrastructure to set up new customer accounts. So, for example, it'll you know fetch you a new login credential. It will set up all the database tables. It will turn on all the entitlements that you get. It will start the billing cycle. It will do all these things, right? It will go out and make all these calls and do all of this work on behalf of a new customer. And doing all those things with concurrent actors was super convenient. And you think about doing it like, the sort of what I would call the normal way, right, with scare quotes, is you would do step one and you wait for it to finish and you do step two and you wait for it to finish and you do step three and you wait for it to finish, right? And you do all these things and you wait for them to finish. Or if you have like a super long running step, like I mentioned, we had this database setup task that we needed to complete. And that thing could take, depending on the load of the database, could take between like 10 seconds and 30 seconds. If we're super busy, with other things, right, then setting up all those tables would take a long time. And it was really great to be able to just sort of fork off a process, say, hey, you go set up the database, and when you're done, let me know, and, you know, we'll add it to this record that we're building up. That's a super powerful way to approach these things that are long-running or, you know, really can get value from concurrency. So that's the point where I was really like, wow, this is this is really pretty cool. Like, you can do a lot of neat stuff with this toolkit, you can build a lot of neat things with it and do a lot of powerful things. My moniker for Erlang is it makes easy things hard and it makes hard things easy, you know? And I think that's still true to an extent, but I still find immense value and pleasure in writing Erlang. And 
it's a really small language. It's really easy to learn. If you have some kind of functional background already, I think that you can pick it up pretty fast. If you don't have a functional background, then learning any functional language is going to be a challenge just because you need to adjust the way that you think about how you do looping iterations and stuff. And if you're going to a functional language like, say, OCaml, which is like super practical and is multi-paradigm and has all these different ways to interface with it, or Scala or something like that, then you're going to have to sort of grapple with how do you do recursion and how do you effectively do recursion and how do you write folds and, you know, what's an accumulator and how does it work? And just sort of all these really sort of fundamental, low-level basic questions about how functional programming itself behaves and works and things like that. And you're describing one of those things I hear a lot of people kind of talk about Erlang is if it's kind of your first functional language or you've got some exposure to functional, but it's still the C style languages, whether that's the exposure to functional concepts via a C sharp or JavaScript or some of these other things, or maybe a little bit with Ruby or Perl or Python with blocks and stuff, you get the hit of it's a different syntax. It's a different way of thinking. You can't reassign. You made that jump. You saw the concurrency. Did you hit that second kind of trough of depression when you're like, well, now I know concurrency, but I don't understand how I structure things? Or at that point, did that kind of click and it all kind of clicked together for you where you're running these jobs and you know how you get things back, but you get things like the idea of sagas or these transactions across sub-transactions across different systems. What was that next level for you? Because I know a lot of people kind of get stuck there and kind of hit that plateau. Right. So I talked about like, if you're dealing with objects, you look at nouns and verbs as kind of the decompositional approach, right? Like that's sort of the toolbox that you open when you say, oh, I want to make objects for this. You're thinking about what nouns and what verbs act on those nouns. That's a pretty solid way to design your object hierarchy, right? And in Erlang, the sort of unit of computation and the unit of abstraction is sort of a process. And a process is essentially a little bit of state that you want to isolate. So it's some part of state that you want to protect and exclusively have something manage that state. So whatever that is in your problem. And Erlang comes with a whole bunch of really battle-tested behaviors to provide those building blocks to make your application. And that's the famous OTP stuff, right? It stands for like Open Telecom Platform or something. I don't know exactly what it stands for. But anyway, it's essentially this set of building blocks for controlling and, and maintaining little bits of state in your program, in your application. And the way that you interface with that state is essentially you request it. You send a message to the thing that owns the state and you say, hey, what's your state? And it will reply with whatever its current state is. And if you want to mutate the state, you'll say, hey, change value X with some update and it will mutate the state internally for that thing. And the point of interface and sort of the protection that you get as a programmer there is that there's this mailbox conceit in Erlang. So as you send messages to processes, they go into this like notional idea of a mailbox. And a mailbox is really just a queue of messages, right? So as they arrive, they get stacked up into this communication I guess I'd call it an abstraction. And what that does is it helps you serialize the changes, right? So those messages all get serialized by the mailbox. So you just pull the first message off the mailbox and then, you know, do whatever it says. Erlang is really big into pattern matching, which is something we haven't really talked about yet, but it's a really, really important concept in all of functional programming 
The idea is, is that you want to take different actions based on the shape of the input of the data that you're sending. And in Erlang, there's this idea of atoms. An atom is basically a, you know, if you use Ruby or something like that, it's, you can think of it as a tag. So in Elixir, they really make that explicit where they actually use the same syntax as Ruby, you know, with the colon and everything. But an atom is just a tag, right? It's just a, a symbol that a human can read and, and understand. Internally inside of Erlang runtime, that atom maps to an integer value that gets stored in by the runtime. So it gets looked up or whatever. So what gets passed around in the messages is not the actual like text that a human reads, but it's, it's some integer that maps into this internal table that's dynamically built up. And having the mailbox serialize the messages for you protects you from sort of data races. You can't have concurrent actors modifying the same piece of data at the same time because the mailbox doesn't permit that. You only process a single message at a single time. And so that serialization helps to prevent sort of data races like concurrent writes and stuff like that. Because the point of the mailbox, there's no concurrency anymore. It's completely single threaded and serialized and all that. You can still have deadlocks. You can still have live locks. You can still have all sorts of other distributed system problems with this model. But overall, this greatly simplifies the sort of way that you need to think about and sort of try to conceptualize how different parts of the system should communicate and send data back and forth to one another. And like I said, you do have explicit state mutation. So every time you want some part of the system to mutate state, you have to explicitly ask for that to happen. When I first started out, I thought that was terrible. But now I think it's genius because there's no surprises then. If you do have surprises, it's 100% because you didn't think of updating that part of state that needed to be thought of, right? It didn't happen by mistake. It didn't happen by accident. It happened because you explicitly asked for it. And if it didn't happen, then that's sort of on you. It's something that you overlooked. It's fine, right? You figure it out eventually. So I think all those things together help you build really robust systems that sidestep a lot of the hard problems about thinking about concurrency especially with the whole data race thing and updating a value at the same time and all of that. It's just not a problem in Erlang because you can't really realistically can't have those sorts of problems. You still can have data races. That still exists. That's not eliminated by any stretch, but you don't have the sort of concurrent update problem and you don't have some of the other problems that, that come up. When concurrency gets introduced into a piece of software, it just like opens a whole new set of problems that need to be dealt with effectively. And Erlang's design helps sidestep some of them nicely, especially for if you're sort of new to the whole world of concurrency and dealing with distributed systems and all that, it's helpful. And then you shortly get in, relatively speaking, into Basho and you go off the deep end of the distributed computing. What was that? <laughs> at, well, and I say deep end because I've seen other talks that like the Erlang factories and Erlang user conferences from you where you're going in deep and you're yeah. hitting some core Erlang kind of stuff to try and solve some of these problems and some of this distributed logging with logger and yeah. a lot of this stuff. How did that transform from doing some of these simple, hey, let's just fire a bunch of this stuff, go gather it, collect it, and await that to the harder problems in distributed computing and what set that foundation for you in some of those learnings there? Right. So, so I talked about how Erlang, core Erlang, just like the runtime system helps you with something like React Core. What you really end up with is another toolkit that's built on top of the runtime that helps you build robust distributed systems. And what I mean by that is sort of multi-node masterless 
distributed systems. So if you want to build something that can scale out to some reasonable number of nodes and you don't want to have a designated leader with a whole bunch of replicas, you want that to be dynamically negotiated, then React Core is a great way to build that. It's a nice toolkit. You get a lot out of the box. I won't say it's for free, right? Because you have to take on the overhead of React Core. But if you're comfortable in that space, like the whole goal of all the talks I've done about React Core is trying to make it easier for people to get, like lower the cognitive burden of understanding how React Core works, right? Like just make it really simple because most people aren't just going to be able to take the time to like read the source code for React Core for a couple weeks or a month or whatever it takes to understand how it works. And like I said, if you're sort of new to Erlang and a little bit shaky on that stuff, it's going to be hard to follow that stuff anyway, right? Like you're going to be bewildered and lost in the wilderness (laughs) anyway, just from the language and not like being able to figure out what is all this stuff about V nodes and master V nodes and synchronous calls and asynchronous calls and read repair and like a whole bunch of other stuff, handoffs that React Core sort of brings to the table. So I mentioned that in Erlang, the unit of computation is a process. In React Core, the unit of computation is a V node. And a V node is this abstraction that's supposed to make it easier for you to think about how to to handle a problem. A V node is really an actor that handles a part of a hash space. So React Core essentially works by taking some data value and converting it into a really big number, a super big number, like 2 to the 160th power. And then it assigns the V node where that number lives based on a map that it maintains internally across all the different physical nodes and physical replicas. And that's where the job gets dispatched to. So it's, hey, V node 42, you're supposed to handle this request because it maps into your key space. So that's kind of how that's all going to work. Your job as a React Core author is to write all the logic for that vNode. So whatever the requests are. I wrote this sample application called Udon for one of my talks two or three years ago, I guess, that is kind of like an edge proxy. It's supposed to serve all the static content like CSS and graphics files and all that kind of stuff, right? Not the dynamic part of your web app, but all the static assets that a web app has with it these days. So JavaScript libraries and all that sort of thing. And I guess that's kind of like what I was trying to really get across there was how you can build up an application like that using React Core really quickly. You could build a multi-node masterless edge proxy with a really small amount of code, right? Like I think Udon is, I don't know, probably like three or 400 lines of Erlang. It's really, really small, right? But it has all these capabilities because it's sitting on top of the framework. And the goal for the talk was, or the talks really were, how can you take advantage of this really capable framework in your sort of everyday job is what you need to do and all that sort of stuff. And that's one of the things I'm kind of wondering at is one of the former Bashuites, I think he was with you at that time, Reed Draper mentioned on an early episode that even if you're doing a website, you're in a distributed system where your client is now a computer and that's a rich desktop now talking to a server. And a lot of people still fumble into the trap of sticky sessions on servers and things like that. And if you're talking React Core and some of the Erlang lessons after you made that jump to be able to work in this kind of 
masterless node system, what are some of those lessons that you think people should know without even necessarily having to dive deep into React Core when they take those lessons back to their job, as you said? We come up against these fallacies all the time. There was an ACMQ article a year ago, maybe, from Kyle Kingsbury and Peter Bayless and some other folks. And they were talking about the top distributed systems fallacies that are still present all the time. And these are super classic things. Everyone's heard them, right? Like clocks only move forward. The network's reliable. All sorts of things like that, right? (laughs) So those are the sort of fundamental things that we just constantly sort of take for granted. And that's fine, right? Like, you know, most of the time it's fine. Sometimes correctness is called for. Sometimes it's important that these things be accounted for. Honestly, if your website goes down for a little while, most people are probably going to be okay with that. I mean, most businesses would be. Maybe not Amazon or whatever, but if you just have like a Shopify storefront or whatever, eh, it's down for half an hour. It's down for half an hour, right? It's like not too horrible. But sometimes correctness is super important. And those are the times when you really want to be able to have something that helps you build an application that does have semantics that are good in the face of all these distributed systems problems, you know, but uh, network partitions and non-monotonic increases in time, it's all sorts of things, concurrent writes and concurrent reads and, you know, all sorts of things like that. So, And so the other thing that I want to ask you about is you mentioned in the pre-call and you touched on a little bit, you've kind of got this sysadmin side. Yep. And after you get into Erlang, you start to realize the beauty of it. Where are you finding that fit in with your sysadmin experience? Because I've heard a lot of people who say there's that correlation between operations, maintenance, running a program, and stability of that with the Erlang side. So once you got into this, did that operation side background kind of start to creep back in and say, ah, now I get this? I think deploying Erlang apps into production is a really interesting topic that probably doesn't have a good set of resources. Actually, now that I think about it, the story around all of that stuff is kind of really terrible. There's only a handful of like, quote, popular sort of Erlang applications that most people have encountered. React might be one of them for some group of people. I think RabbitMQ is maybe the other one that that people have some operational experience with on a really big scale. You know, what we do at Alert Logic here is our whole ops team and basically the sort of engineering philosophy that we have is that your team owns your code. You own it for the whole time. It's not like a thing where you check it into GitHub and build an artifact and throw it over the wall and then it's someone else's problem. It's your problem. You own your problem the whole time, all the way through deployment and in production and Over the last three years or so, uh, there's been this whole pipeline built up where we can just check code into GitHub, go to Jenkins and say, hey, we need to build an artifact. You know, right now those artifacts are basically uh, EC2 AMIs. We're converting to a Docker sort of, you know, containerized infrastructure because that's just faster and easier for everyone. But right now it's Jenkins builds your artifacts for you. And then we have this whole automated pipeline deployment. So it's like, to stand up a new instance of your service or whatever in Erlang is super easy for us. I think that whole topic is something that has not really been well addressed by the Erlang community, as far as I'm aware. I have this great grand vision, and actually one of my long-running and somewhat neglected side projects is to help people publish these artifacts to 
a service. So for a long time, Erlang never had it sort of a, I don't know what to call it, an artifact repository. So, you know, for JavaScript, there's the NPM repository. For Ruby, there's Ruby Gems. For Perl, there's CPAN. For Python, there's, you know, PyPy and the Cheese Shop or whatever you want to call it. Java has Maven and all that. So all of these programming languages and stuff have their own repositories for code. And for a long time, Erlang didn't have that. And our build tools and build infrastructure tools basically pulled projects like straight off of GitHub. And I mean, that's fine. It works for some value of works, but you know, to do repeatable builds and sort of all the other things that are nice, you need to have more control over that. So a couple of years ago, I guess, maybe a year ago, some of the Elixir folks kind of put together this hex thing. There's this site called hex.pm, and it's an artifact repository for Erlang and for Elixir. And you can publish your, your stuff straight into that now. On the Erlang side, the build tool rebar three has support for hex. So anyway, what I wanted to do was Hex is great. Hex is really, really cool. And it supports multi-tenancy and it's internet facing. It has like all this sort of ownership ideas and you have to have a user account and all that sort of thing. What I wanted to build and what I still want to build is like this sort of hex behind the firewall, which is just for your company's artifacts. So if you if you have an Erlang shop like we do, and you're publishing and creating a lot of Erlang artifacts. You don't want to publish them to like a public repository because that's all your company's application code and stuff. What you really want is like an artifact repository that sits behind the firewall that can interact with all the build tools really easily and straightforwardly. And so that's what I started to build. And then I kind of stalled out on that. Can't remember why I stalled out on it right now, but <laughs> uh, I, uh, oh, I remember what it was. It was, uh, it was because I wasn't sure how I wanted to handle the database layer. I wanted to keep it as simple as possible. So one of the things that I was trying to do was what is the simplest possible database layer that you could have in an application? And to me, that was like SQLite, which is a fantastic, uh, amazing tool. So that's kind of the direction that I was headed on. And then I was like, well, then I have to come up with a schema and all that sort of stuff. And that's sort of where I stopped messing around with this. So I have all of the parts up to I need to write this into a database kind of done. But then I just sort of ran out of steam. So (laughs) if this is something that someone out there listening is really interested in working on, get in contact with me and I'll show you what I have and you know you can make fun of it and maybe fix it and, and finish it. But that's really what I'd like to do. As far as how Erlang interrupts with like operational stuff, I think there is a lot of room to do better as a community in making that more straightforward. It's super straightforward here because we spent a lot of engineering time and talent on that. But I think if you're just some random place that maybe is looking at Erlang as a, a possibly a new development technology or whatever, that is a non-trivial amount of, of engineering work that needs to happen. And I think that that's not good. I think that's not a good story for Erlang as a language. I think for Elixir, there's been more of an emphasis on that. I, Elixir has been a really interesting intersection. because sort of like I came to Erlang before Elixir was really a thing. Maybe it was a thing, but it wasn't really well known. And then it just sort of blew up. And it's great because a lot of people that normally wouldn't ever consider Erlang have come to Erlang and embraced it sort of through the back door, right? Like they're using Elixir, but I mean, Elixir is really just, I don't want to say it's merely an interface, but in a lot of ways, it sort of enhances what Erlang already brings to the table, right? It's It's got a nicer syntax that people like better. It has a few really neat original ideas, some nice syntactic sugar and stuff like that, which is great. But the thing that's really, really been neat about Elixir vis-a-vis Erlang is that the Elixir guys are super committed to writing nice libraries with really nice APIs. 
And I think that's a product of kind of maybe coming from Ruby, where that was a, just a foregone conclusion, right? Like if you need to do X, Y, or Z, it's chances are probably 90% that someone's already written a gem that does whatever X, Y, or Z is. In Erlang, it's more kind of you end up having to roll your own or you like have to pick through like 15 forks on GitHub, some of which are super moribund and haven't been updated for three years. And it's a much more difficult thing to do. I think with Hex, that's changed a lot. Like it's easier to tell like what projects are actively maintained. For example, like Logger and, and some of the stuff like that. We try to triage that like all the time, at least once a month is our cadence. So we're trying to release a new version of Logger once a month. And it's easy to track that now that Hex exists. And you can see like when the last time something got published in that artifact repo, which is really nice than having to go track it down at GitHub and figure all that stuff out for yourself. And there's a couple things you kind of touched on that I want to expand on. One of them before we get there is the other side is from the operations background and knowing what's going on in the system. What have you found about Erling? Was that something that caught your attention after the fact? Or was that something that, that as an operations person, you find advice, especially since you maintain what you roll out and you deploy for all the things that you can do the inspection and see what's running, where the messages are, what the queue sizes are? What was that side, especially with the systems admin background, when you're having to manage this stuff? Right. So in Erling, there's kind of two main libraries that people use for metrics. Like one is called Folsom, and that kind of came out of Boundary, which is a startup that was around six or seven years ago. And the other one is one from Ulf Uyghur called Exameter. And actually, React uses a little bit of both. Internally at Alert Logic, we have sort of a custom Alert Logic wrapper around a collection that's very much like Folsom, but it's not Folsom. I would say it's Folsom-like, but it's not the same API. And then since we sort of have gone all in on Amazon for deployment, all of our production, almost I'd say like 80 to 85% of our production environment is in Amazon now. We're using Datadog as kind of the service that aggregates all these things that we're collecting. But Erlang itself lends itself to collecting all this operational stuff really straightforwardly. And it's lovely. It's a, it's a lovely thing. You can get a lot of really good information from the runtime system, just what it provides out of the box. We have instrumented our own application code with our metrics library, but if you want to use Folsom or Exameter to instrument your application, there's a bunch of really pretty decent tutorials that show you how to do that sort of thing. Yeah, outputting that stuff to Datadog, which is what we've been doing here for the last year, I guess, is fantastic. You know, you build your nice dashboards and put them up on big TV monitors, and it's all the bells and whistles that you want to get out of a solution like that. With respect to Logger, I guess, the whole thing about Logger is that, <laughs> actually, I guess the OTP teams kind of stole my thunder a little bit, but up until OTP 20, which is the brand new release that just got released like three days ago, log messages in Erlang could kill your VM dead. And the reason they killed your VM dead was because they just copied themselves without pound. So if you had a really big state like in a server somewhere, and, and I'm using a server in the sense of a process that's accepting messages, so not like a, a web server or something. It's an actual process in Erlang that accepts messages and responds to messages. That's that's a, quote, server in Erlang speak. If you had a big state inside of that, remember, we're talking about how Erlang partitions state into these processes that accept messages. If you had a really, really huge state and it crashed, then it would continue to just 
copy itself as it cascaded through your system. The way that Erlang is set up, like one of its kind of founding principles is that you don't try to code defensively. You just, when something's weird, you just crash. You just let your process die. And then on top of that, there's this supervision layer that looks and says, oh, hey, this process that's supposed to maintain this piece of state died. I'm going to restart that so it'll be in a known good state. And then you can just continue on your merry way. It turns out this is a really, really powerful way to build applications. But if you have a process that dies and it has a very large state and the supervisor restarts it, there's a cascade of error messages that go out and all these different systems inside of the runtime system that try to process those things. And it can just continue to copy itself over and over and over and over again until eventually you run out of all memory and your VM can't allocate any new memory and it just dies. The whole thing dies. Every single application that's running on top of your Erlang VM dies. So that's really bad. And so I guess five years ago or so, Andrew Thompson, who was one of the senior developers at Basho, wrote Logger. And then through a series of machinations where we wanted to provide better error codes for React failures, I kind of got tasked with implementing a bunch of new functionality in Logger. And my colleague there, John Daly, really helped me with that. And so together, we kind of put together this new version of Logger that we called Logger 3. And ever since then, we've kind of been taking care of Logger. When I say we, I mean Andrew and myself. So Logger now is sort of completely independent of Basho. It's like its own separate repo and everything. And so that's been uh, really, really great uh, for us to be able to look at that application and just continue to make it better and better. So, but that's the whole reason it exists is because logging is a ticking time bomb in Erlang and it will kill your VM. In the OTB20, the new release, the OTB team actually lets you limit the amount of copies that a giant state will make of itself. And so that means that this ticking time bomb has been diffused by the runtime directly. But that doesn't mean that logger isn't useful or doesn't have any value. But that, the main reason that it exists is because of this whole ticking time bomb issue. Anyway, you might guess that we learned about the ticking time bomb from failure modes of React, where we had cascading failures and eventually just killed the entire database. <laughs> Yet another reason why uh, Logger got invented. So anyway, I guess long story long, logging is something that is not appreciated very well, taken for granted, and actually can be quite detrimental to your system health. So it's definitely worth thinking about a little more carefully sometimes. And then the other thing I wanted to touch on is you mentioned you're using Amazon and Docker deploys, but one of the things about Erlang is that you can keep your process up and running in hot reload code, Yep. which Amazon, you can start a new instance and you have a new server running with all your nodes. So where's that balance and what's common between those two and what are some of those trade-offs and lessons learned? Because I can see where you can still have two or three or four or a dozen versions of your code via an Amazon Docker instance, but how do you work on that coordination and what's the story between those two similarities and differences at a high level? That is a really neat thing about the Erlang runtime is that it can hot load code, automatically quiesce the old code and then transition to the new code completely seamlessly. All that magic happens completely inside of the runtime. So as a developer, you don't really need to do anything to do that. Sort of in a modern microservices focused architecture, we find that feature doesn't help us as much because we've sort of moved the point where we need to have that quiescence up a level, right? So it's not just at the sort of runtime level, it's more like at the application service level. But something that is really neat about Erlang and that is quite useful occasionally is if you have an application that is very long running, like um, one of the things that we do here is 
we have a, a MapReduce system that's written in Erlang and it runs continuously, right? It's not deployed through, through our pipeline. It has its own separate release process. The reasons for that are complex and varied, but the net net is, is that that particular system is a system where sometimes you have a flaw in a release and you need to patch it. And sometimes you can sneak a patch out onto the server, cowboy style, and just hot load it. And then no one knows that you had a flaw in your code. <laughs> uh, and, and actually, this was a technique that was used at Basho, not infrequently, not in a cowboy way, right? Like we wouldn't sneak stuff onto customer stuff without them knowing about it. But it was super handy. Like if you had a React version that had a flaw and you didn't want to take down your system, you could actually go into the REPL, the Erlang runtime REPL, the redevelop print loop, and hot load the code there in your React system. And it would sort of automatically transition and use that. So if you if you have a React installation, there's a directory called patches. What those patches are, are actually Erlang Beam code. Beam is Erlang virtual machine. So as a company, we could deliver these patches to customers that took care of a specific flaw for that specific customer. And they could hot load that right into their running system without having to, to restart the whole, the whole uh, database cluster, which is kind of cool. But I think... In a normal deployment pipeline, this thing doesn't come up too often, although it is super cool and, and a neat feature. I do know that there are other companies that use Erlang, especially like game companies that are using Erlang for game backends where they hold game state for each customer in a process, right? We talked about how processes, so processes map really nicely to, to mobile users quite nicely. So they put all the state in that process that represents a user of their game. And then if there's a fault with the game mechanics, like a computational error, one of the examples from Erlang user conference that we just had in June was um, there was a calculation flaw. And I guess it, it was like a 32-bit integer and it rolled over. And so people were getting like negative points or something. And so they rolled out this hotfix. Um, and what they did is they just went to the Erlang system and they said, hey, we've got this patch file load this new piece of code and it corrected that problem. And you know they didn't have to take down their whole system to do that. They could just kind of get it going out there in production. I guess that's a little most interesting man in the world for most people, but it's a nice escape valve if you need to have it. It's there. And that's one of those things I hear that's nice, but it also, as you said, with the Amazon stuff, you kind of move it up a level. Yeah. And you could do A, B, deploys, red, green, blue, deploys, whatever you want to call it. Yep. And have multiple versions running because of different images and different servers. So is there something special at a high level or do some of those lessons still apply and the code change will respect the code change if you're communicating across nodes, even if you're on different servers with different versions? Or is it still pretty much the same as if you did it just on a regular server without going to Docker or the cloud? Yeah, so you only get that magic if you directly touch bits on you know the image. Most people don't want to do that, right? Because they have automated platform to do that or whatever, like they have canary rollout or something. So all of that stuff sort of isolated from touches by uh, icky developer humans. And the way you fix that flaw sort of in our pipeline is, is that you would roll a new version, build a new AMI, it would kick off the whole thing and you deploy a new deployment. And 30 minutes later, whatever, it would be fixed at that level. But there's still the old way of doing it, the cowboy way. It's still there, still can be done. And that I think that's sort of directly out of like Erlang's heritage is kind of being focused by a telecom manufacturer, right? Like Ericsson is is this uh, very large Swedish company and they make a lot of phone switches and Erlang got developed to to run phone switches. 
And it's still used in a lot of phone switches today, especially for mobile phone switches. Not so much like POTS, like the plain old telephone, uh, landline systems. Those generally don't use Erlang at all, at least not in the United States. But for mobile phones, there's a reasonably high percentage of mobile phones right now that are that are having their bit streams, communications, all mediated through Erlang via Ericsson phone switches. So still sort of under the scenes, uh, probably won't ever know it, but it's still kind of out there in the environment. And Ericsson still uses Erlang in a lot of their products. So it's not just for Ericsson, though, which is nice. So. <laughs> And then we're coming up on time, but is there anything that we haven't talked about that we'd at least be remiss if we didn't bring up at a high level or circle back around to and explain something before we start wrapping up the episode? I guess I would say it's, I just want to encourage people to not be intimidated by Erlang. Like, uh, I know that it has this like reputation as something that's difficult to understand or difficult to pick up. And I've kind of intimated, sometimes I've struggled with that. And I definitely did. I don't want to hide that fact, but at the end of the day, it was really worth it. And something that I didn't appreciate until after I came through that was is that learning Erlang has really impacted the way that I approach software development, not just for functional languages, but even in scripting languages, um, like the way that I write Python or the way that I write Perl or the way that I you know, approach things in general really has a functional bent to it now. I really try to think about what if I did only have a list uh, here that I could iterate over the top of, right? Or how do I want to isolate mutation in my system? How do I want to keep that separate and, and protect it? So those are things that are really useful programming practices or disciplines that really can improve your code, no matter what sort of code you write in your day-to-day job. Even if you don't use Erlang like day-to-day, like I do. By the way, if you want to use Erlang day-to-day, we are hiring. So you know, hit me up. My DMs are open. But at the same time, it's like, the way that I write Python is different now, and I think it's better. And I think that it's it's actually more thoughtful, and I think that it's more, I guess what I would say is less load to think about how I want to interact with these objects, right? Like how I want to approach this decompositional problem, how I want to kind of structure the code, I think it's better. I think that it's cleaner and and just generally speaking, more thoughtful in how I'm approaching this stuff. I think that's positive, a good thing. And before the call, you mentioned you were doing a tic-tac-toe thing that you're working on, but as far as a reference implementation, but are there some other reference implementations that included that you would say you should point people to that say, here's good examples of good Erlang that takes into account some of these things of the processes or concurrency and things like that. So what are some of those references for people who are either getting in and hitting that middle middle plateau or people new and say, Here's how you structure things so you start with the right patterns going forward. So I've been working on this side project called Throwdown. It started off kind of as a joke, but what it does is that it's a system that simulates rock, paper, scissor tournaments. And each actor is like a player, the way this is decomposed. And so each actor registers itself in an arena. Arenas are places where game state is maintained. And then the players all choose whatever they're going to choose actually wrote it's uh, Rock, Paper, Scissors, Lizard, Spock, because, you know, I'm a nerd and that's super nerdy. But anyway, yeah, so each player chooses Rock, Paper, Scissors, Lizard, or Spock as their choice, and they send that in the arena, and then the arena evaluates all the different outcomes, and it updates its game state and notifies all the players. If you lose in your round, you get notified and you're out. The process ends. So it's kind of a 
easy way to visualize, okay, this is what this process is supposed to be doing. It's like a guy who's playing rock, paper, scissors, lizard, Spock with some other people that are playing the same game. And they're all standing around in some certain area, right? That's the arena. And they decide who wins the round based on whatever each player chooses and so on and so forth. And so it's kind of an easy way to think about how all this stuff comes together. So there's that. And then a couple years ago, three years ago, I did another presentation at Midwest IO that's on YouTube. That's another sort of gentle introduction to Erlang through a game. This is a trading game. It's, I used to play this game called Taipan when I was a kid on my Apple II. And it was a game where you would like sail around in the sort of in the Far East and you would trade different commodities and you could sell them for higher prices at other ports. And so I wanted to model that in Erlang. And I did a whole talk, I think it's about 35 minutes, just discussing kind of the basic premise of what Erlang gives you. And that's another project that is pretty easy to understand and, and get your head around in terms of like, what are all these processes for? What do they represent? What are they simulating? How do they work? How do they pass messages back and forth between each other? All those sorts of things. So I think that's another good project to kind of get your feet wet with Erlang a little bit. And then if you're like, ready for the next level and you want to look at React Core, something that's more of a distributed systems toolkit. There is this project I wrote called Udon, also on GitHub that you can check out. That's kind of at this, what I mentioned before, it's like a proxy server for the edge. That's its intent. And it was for a workshop. That's what I wrote it for. It was uh, both for this talk at Erlang Factory, but also I did a longer like three-hour workshop in Chicago a couple years ago about this. And so it's still out there and that's a pretty good one. It's It's not hopefully not too difficult to understand what's going on with that. I think those are like all of the sort of educational uh, projects that I've picked. If you want to get Erlang installed directly, you could use Curl, K-E-R-L, which is also a project that I help maintain with my uh, colleague, Michael Coles, and that will help you get Erlang installed on your system from source code. does not work on Windows. does work on Windows subsystem for Linux. So if you have Windows 10, you can install the Ubuntu system there and it will build fine. But if you uh, want to run Erlang on Windows, you have to download that from Erlang.org. Otherwise, you can use Curl if you have Mac or if you have Linux to work on those. I think that's a pretty good rundown, I guess. And then I know you just got back from the Erlang user conference, but are there any other upcoming conferences? Are there any recent conferences that we should be looking for talks from you about? Where can people find you related to conferences? And then we'll get into where can people find you online? I just got back from a conference in the Erlang User Conference in Stockholm, uh, where I talked about sagas. Sagas are like a really nice distributed systems abstraction to provide sort of transactional semantics without global locks. Now, I got some feedback from this presentation. People really latched onto this idea of a transaction. I don't know if you want to get into it here or not, but it is possible that other actors will see partial visibility. Like they, it's not atomic, like in the sense of acid. So as this sort of set of actions takes place, it is possible that other actors will see visibility into the partial completion. So if something gets rolled back, like at the end of this, like because of a failure or whatever, other actors might have witnessed the partial progress or the partial rollback of this transaction type object. So don't get too hung up on that, I guess. It's really a shorthand way to say that the end state that you desire is that all of your actions succeed or all of them are reset to some initial state. And that's really the key thing, the key idea behind a saga is that you either completely succeed with all of the sort of sub actions or you roll back the whole thing and you can start again from scratch. That's the key point of this. So I wrote this library for Erlang called Gisla that implements saga patterns for Erlang. 
And I got really good feedback about that. I actually have a bunch of to-dos now open to work on that code from the top, which is great. So I'm pretty excited about that. I haven't started tackling those issues yet, but definitely on my to-do list. And then I was in Barcelona last week talking about abstraction. So it was kind of a rumination on how abstraction sometimes stabs us. And this sort of immediate consequence of that or the proximate cause of or the content of that talk was I've been learning Spark and I've been learning Scala lately. There's just a lot of sort of stabby, sharp parts of the abstractions in those two things that have been hurting lately. And so I wanted to share my pain with a group of other people. And that's what that talk is about. And it, I think it's on YouTube now. So I don't know about the one from Stockholm. I don't know if it's on YouTube. I know the slides are and the code is certainly on GitHub, but I don't know if the YouTube video is up yet, but hopefully it will be soon. So, And then what's the best place for people to follow you along with you online and keep up to date with what you're putting out, what you're doing, a blog, Twitter, GitHub? Yeah, it's definitely Twitter. If you follow me on Twitter, you will get a smattering of random pictures of barbecue, probably snarky political tweets, and probably a ton of papers and distributed systems nerdery. So if any of those things interest you, please follow me. I'm at biteme.org. That's B-Y-T-E-M-E-O-R-G. It used to be a website that I ran. I still have the domain name, but uh, the website has been offline for 10 plus years because... Like I mentioned, I used to be a sysadmin. And then around 2004 or so, I was like, you know, a lot of people are trying to hack my server. And it's just a stupid Pentium 100. Like literally, it was a Pentium 100 that I you know, bought in 2000. And it was this OpenBSD box. So they, I don't think they broke into it or anything. But I was like, why am I going through all this grief to like maintain the server? This takes a significant amount of free time. When I could be playing, you know, video games or watching TiVo or whatever, so I decided to just stop doing all that, and I took the server offline. And ever since then, it's kind of been offline. But at some point, I should like set up the domain name so it points to some blog site. The problem is that I have this like philosophical issue with needing a database for what is essentially static content. Like it just really irritates the crap out of me that I need to have a MySQL instance to serve up. Markdown, right? That gets translated through PHP to like go through your browser. So at some point, maybe I'll set up a static site or whatever using Hugo or something to build an actual website with random things that I think are interesting. But yeah, Twitter's the best place for sure. So that would be my suggestion. Usually when I need to write blog posts now, I just put them in a gist and I link them from my Twitter feed, which is for visibility, like for search, Google searchability and stuff, but it works. It's fine. And I'll get your GitHub for your repos so people can browse your repos and your Twitter in the show notes so people can come back and find out more. Cool. Thanks. I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, thank you, Mark, for taking your time to join me today. I know we've talked over Twitter some, but it was a pleasure actually talking to you video to video, face to face. Um, yeah. And thanks for taking your time to show me. And I look forward to talking some more and maybe at some point digging back into more of how you're doing. Erling on Amazon and Docker and some of those other processes and what that deployment story looks like at, for what you can share. So thanks for taking your time to join me today. And it's a pleasure talking with you. Thanks. I appreciate it. Thank you. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.